Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. On 1116 SEN, this is the Flag Flyers for the American-Australian Association, devoted to strengthening relations between the United States and Australia. Hello everyone and welcome to the Flag Flyers, a place where we profile and chat about all the Aussies flying the flag for us in the US of A. I'm Christopher Tyler and alongside me is no one today. Xavier Player is not in the studio with me, neither is Lockie. He's still overseas for the next couple of weeks or so. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to have a very special episode of the flag flies. A couple of weeks ago, Jason Bennett, the man behind Aussies Abroad, joined Lockie and I in the studio. It was a terrific chat. It went for about 40 minutes. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be playing the first half of that chat. Next week, we'll be playing the second half. So it's a very special edition of the flag flies today. No round in the bases. It'll just be me and Lockie chatting with Jason Bennett. So let's get straight into the show. Here's our chat with Jason Bennett. Joining us in the studio today is Jason Bennett, the man behind Aussies Abroad. He's paved the way for people like me and Lockie to do what we've been doing over the past year. And Jason joins us in the studio. Mate, welcome to the show. I think you're giving me a little bit too much credit there. You guys have paved your own way. You've done a great job finding a niche and a passion that you love and uh, and developing it. Hats off to both of you. You've done a great job. Thank it's you. interesting to see this modesty because I've got my own little tale, which I just want to tell quickly, was that... Uh, I graduated uni in, in 2012. Um, I'm not sure if you know the backstory to this, but um, I came out with a Bachelor of Commerce, the same sort of thing degree you came out of. And Indeed, yeah. I knew Jason's brother, um, and uh, I just asked him, uh, could I grab his email address so I could send him a message to ask how do I get into the media or could I have an internship at ESPN in the US or something like that. And uh, so I shot off a message, and to your credit, you actually wrote back, I've still got it, it's the longest email step-by-step detailing uh, how you did it and how to how to do it, and so the first step was basically, you know, create your own opportunities or whatever. So I did, and that turned into a short writing stint at ESPN that Jace gave me. And that turned into here. So um, you are you're quite impactful with how you've uh, influenced one career, but uh, your story is quite interesting. The same how you came into the media, uh, sending letters off as a child. Yeah, I did. I, I growing up, I always wanted to be an AFL commentator from the time I was old enough to realise what that was and and you know while other kids were wanting to be Peter Dacos or Peter Bazusto, I wanted to be Peter Landy who was a commentator at Channel 7 at the time and so I always grew up wanting to, to do uh, AFL footy and I finished school and got good marks and could pretty much do any uni course I wanted to do but I mean what do you do there's no footy commentary 101 so what do you do for uni so like you, as you mentioned Lockie I did a, a commerce degree at Melbourne Uni because I thought that's just a nice general degree it's going to give me broad opportunities to be able to earn a living and have a plan B while I'm working on plan A. And and that's pretty much how it turned out. The only part about it I liked was the marketing side because it was creative. Uh, the rest of it was pretty dry. It was all accounting and economics and all this sort of stuff, which I just had to grind through for a few years. Um, and then so I came out and I started in the marketing world and I was actually the, the marketing manager for Drum and Golf, the big golf retailer. I was their national marketing manager. At, I think it was like 21 or 22 at the time. And I was doing that for a few years because, again, it was sport and it was something that I thought, you know, that might just bring me closer to the sort of circles I want to be moving in. And um, and as it turned out, my the radio rep that was selling me 
radio was also selling radio for a guy named Russell Morris, who was an ex-Hawthorne and St Kilda player who was working at Channel 7 on their footy coverage at the time. And Russell was starting his own sports marketing agency. And he put sort of two and two together and said, hey, listen, you want to get into the sports media. Russell's looking for somebody to join his agency. Why don't you get together? And so we did. And so I joined Russell and it was basically just me and him. And, uh, and that did exactly what I hoped it would, which took me into those circles. Russell was writing for the footy record, so I started ghostwriting his articles. The guys at the footy record liked my work and said, hey, do you want to write a few of your own? One thing led to another. I'd been sending letters off, as you said, Lockie, for years without response to radio stations and TV stations every year saying, hey, this is who I am and this is what you know I'd like to do and what I think I could do. Never heard anything back. And then, But then once you're in the door, I found you know I could write on my letter that I now write for the footy record. It gives me a sense of credibility. And then the Triple M came back to me and said, hey, listen, we need a, a stats guy. Our guy's just left. So I had the amazing experience of spending a, a couple of years in the commentary box with the likes of Eddie Maguire and Steve Quartermain and Dermot Brereton and Sam Newman and Brian Taylor and all these incredible people just sitting there soaking up everything about them. And I wanted to be a caller, so I got the opportunity to fill in. It was, was funny because they were looking for another caller. And uh, Jason Dunstall and Paul Salmon had just retired. And so they, they brought them in for a, an audition to see if they were going to be play-by-play guys. And sensing the opportunity, I said, well, listen, it's really hard to do it on your own. I'll just be the second caller. You know, could I be the second guy? And uh, they said, yeah, sure, no worries. And so I did the, I did the uh, audition with those guys and they gave me the chance to actually effectively audition myself. And then they listened to it afterwards and went, hey, actually, you're really good. Why don't you do it? So I got the job and then one thing led to another and someone at Fox Footy, who I, I didn't know anyone at Fox Footy, um, someone at Triple M, one of my co-callers, had obviously sent in a, um, a an audition tape to the guys at Fox to say uh, they want to get a job there. And I was the second caller on the tape. And again, they listened to the guy and went, oh, he's okay. Who's the other guy? Well, it's this guy, Jason Bennett. And so they found me and so suddenly I ended up on Fox Footy and away we went. So... It's amazing how it all works, and but again, it just comes down to those basic fundamentals of just you know persistence and just staying at it and chasing your dream and being prepared to sacrifice for your dream and and being prepared to you know have that uncertainty in your life. Don't take the safe job, hang out, try for the one you really want, and eventually it works itself out. Uh, coming through Fox Footy, it's funny that you know the different generations. If you speak to people that are probably my age and younger, they know you for, for Aussies Abroad, which we'll touch on in a second. But, you know, if we go for that age group maybe above me, that's Fox Footy because that's where really you, you cut your teeth on the national scene to start with. What was that like as a, um, as a, as a coming of age for you in the media landscape and what did that sort of do for your media career? Yeah, it all happened really quick. As I said, I remember I was walking out of Triple M one afternoon. It was September of 2001 and the phone rang and it was this guy from Fox Footy saying, hey, come in for a chat. And at that stage, I'd already been doing some stuff with Eddie Maguire who'd taken me under his wing and been a great mentor. And I was planning to go to Channel 9 who'd got the broadcast rights the next year and I was going to go to 9 as a statistician and do producing behind the scenes. And, and so I figured that was what Fox wanted to talk to me about. And then they sort of said, no, 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 we're actually thinking about you know making you the sort of face of the channel. And I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. How did that happen so fast? So it was. It was a it was a, a an unbelievable roller coaster ride. And and the first time uh, I was the first person ever on Fox Footy because um, we had a preseason game. It was Tony Lockett's comeback game in Sydney. I'd never been on TV before in my life. And here I was sitting there with the red light about to go on. And it was the very first time Fox Footy was ever on, was the first time I was ever on television. So your mug was the first thing people (laughs) saw on Fox Footy. Yeah, and I'd never been on TV before. So I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, look, I reckon I can do this. But I didn't know for certain till it actually came time to do it. There was no apprenticeship. It was just sink or swim. Was there a way that you had to prepare yourself 
b- before you kind of got got that initial first gig? Yeah, there was lots of panic attacks, and no, no, there wasn't actually. No, look, it was. Uh, uh, how do you how do you prepare? There was no real way to prepare. Yeah. I mean, how do you prepare? Um, when the light goes on, you speak, and you hope you've done your research. And I've always been a a fastidious researcher always always done a lot more research than I ever need to because you just never know when you're going to need stuff and it's come it's been many times over the years when things have gone wrong in a broadcast and suddenly you're required to basically talk to yourself for an extended period of time now if you've done your homework all this research then you're good to go you back yourself in and you know look I know about I know as much about this as I possibly can so if anything goes wrong and I need to carry the broadcast at any time I can do it and I carried that over to – I came back this year and, and did the VFL coverage for Channel 7 and, and did some AFL stuff for them as well. And I was literally spending three days a week, every week, full-time prepping one VFL game. Now, right. like that's three times more than I would have done in the AFL, but there's an obvious reason why. When the ball's bounced at the start of the game, you're standing there and you're looking out at 36 guys you've never seen before in your life. And you need to know everything about them. You need to know what, where they come from, who they are, what they look like, because you're not going to see their numbers. They're running directly towards you. You need to know everything about them. It took three days a week to do it. Now, did, did I need to do that? No, I probably could have called the game without doing that much research. Would I have called it as well? No way. So I did it. I've heard you um, mention that aspect of it before, and I, I think somewhere I've, I've seen you uh, represent as the stats man um, before because you are quite statistically um, uh, orientated or have that arrow um, I, I, um, to your sort of repertoire. Well, that's not the right saying, is it? Arrow to your bow. Yeah. I have that string to my bow. String to, string the, bow. to the bow. But uh, do you feel that's something that, you know, um, if you want to be uh, a strong media performer, that, you know, some people that may be in there at the moment lack and that they try and get away with with not having that you know that stats basis to be able to have that credibility the great thing about footy commentary or any sports commentary really is there's no hard and fast way to do it everybody's got their own style everybody's got their own preferences uh commentator a you'll sit around the table at the pub and say oh commentator a he's the best commentator in australia by a mile the guy sitting next to him will go you're kidding aren't you that bloke, I can't stand him. He's the worst commentator in Australia. Now, you're listening to exactly the same commentary, but your personal take on it is completely different. So the difficult thing when you're a sports commentator is getting feedback is extremely difficult, even from producers and channel managers, because if they haven't actually been a commentator themselves, it's an extremely difficult thing to give feedback on because they might say to you, you might say, listen, how am I going? And they'll say, oh, you're going well. And they'll say, "What else could I, you say? What else could I do better?" And they're sort of like, oh, "Well, I, I don't know. I, I either like it or I don't." And you can't necessarily put a finger on what it is about that person's commentary that you do or don't like. So, to answer your question, some people like to do lots of research and lots of um, you know preparation. Others don't. Others are happy to just walk in, open the footy record, and just call the game. Now, I my my personal philosophy is, I think I can add a lot more colour and a lot more background and a lot more to a coverage insight if I've done the homework. I, to me, if I just walk in and do the footy record approach, it feels like cheating. But it works for some people, not for others. So how from Fox Sports did you make your way to ESPN then? What was that story like? Yeah, well, at the end of 06, Fox Sports, we just suddenly found out out of the blue that the place was going to be closed down. The broadcast rights had been lost and there was a big spat about who was going to pick up the rights and all that sort of stuff. So basically everyone that was there, we were all probably anticipating, you know, we we're going to be there for many years to come and that wasn't going to go anywhere. And suddenly it all just stopped. So we we're all out of work and... Um, 
And so I started my own production company. In that final year at Fox, I started a, a documentary series called Headliners, um, which was an AFL series, and it won a, a stack of media awards that year, and it was really well received. And it made me realise that my passion beyond commentary was storytelling. And uh, I really enjoyed doing it and created it from scratch and did it all myself and produced it and hosted it and wrote it and created it and did the whole thing. And it made me realise, you know what, if I'm going to chase something other than just commentary, if I need a, a day job, as it were, in the business, sports storytelling is probably, you know, where I'd like to head. So I started my own production company, started making a few documentaries, and I was lucky enough to pick up some clients, the Herald Sun and Foxtel and Sydney Swans. I did a 25th anniversary in Sydney doco for them. And, and things were going very well on that front. And... Um, the guy who was running Fox Footy, the channel manager originally, a guy named Sean Riley, started working with me on these documentaries. And and we uh, picked up a job to go to Johannesburg and call a, a pre-season game. Carlton and Fremantle were playing a, a NAB Cup game over in, um, in South Africa. And I called it and hosted it and Sean directed it. And on the way back, a friend of ours that we'd worked with at Fox Footy, Tiffany Cherry, was starting at ESPN in the States. So we thought, well, we'll drop back on the way back and we'll go and have a look at ESPN. We'll meet a few people over there and we'll pitch some ideas to them of ideas of programs we could make for them in Australia and had this conversation and they're like, hey, you guys have got some great ideas, but why don't you base yourselves over here? And we thought, you know what? Why don't we? So we did. So we moved to uh, America. Sean's still over there. He's, he's transitioned into a different role. He's doing wonderful things over in their talent office, running contracts and things for talent around the world. And I had uh, six great years there making Aussies abroad and, and hosting SportsCenter. It's interesting you bring up the, the aspect of storytelling. I've heard Ben Crow. Uh, talk before from a, a international uh, marketer for, for Nike uh, talk about you know the, the importance of storytelling in documentaries and um, in advertising marketing and things like that and I think that's something that one of the core reasons why Aussies Abroad was so successful is that you did a really good job of storytelling about these Aussie champions and creating them um, making them human and much more relatable to to everyday people like you know myself and Chris or you know people that aren't in that elite world of sport I'm just curious to know what what did you look for when you actually um, look for a subject matter in terms of why why would you pick Daniel Ricardo or, or how would you position it to, to make sure that you tell a story what would you look for everyone particularly every overseas athlete every Australian overseas has got a compelling story to tell every single one could be someone you've never heard of, but I can guarantee you if they're a professional athlete living half a world from home, they've got an amazing story because all of them at some point have to step off the cliff and back themselves in and leave their entire lives behind. And it's very different to storytelling here. If you go and do, if I did a, a similar series with AFL players or NRL players, their stories are much, much more similar. They've all gone down much the same path. They've gone into the AFL system at 16 or 17, 18 years of age and they've been drafted to a club and they've played. And they've had their ups and downs, their injuries and their form concerns and all those sort of things. But the life experience for all of them is much the same. A lot of them never leave home. They still live with mum and dad and everything's organised for them. If you're, a, um, if you're living overseas and you're an Australian athlete, at some point, as I say, you've got to step off the cliff and hope that there's some land, some ground underneath you there and you're going to fall, but it's just a question of how far you're going to fall before you gather your feet. And... Dan was interesting. I, I, Dan and I first met when he, before he was in Formula One because I looked at his trajectory and I realised at some point this kid's going to be in Formula One. So I took an interest in Dan before he was famous, if we could put it in those terms. And his career was at a, a juncture, a crossroads, um, whether he was going to make it or not. And we became uh, friends. And as I did with my, most of the Aussie guys overseas there and girls, they're, they're homesick, they're lonely, 
and they're trying to get a break from the monotony of the life that they're living overseas. So the idea of a fellow Australian coming to spend a week with them and just hang out and talk and share in jokes that only Australians get and things like that is unbelievably refreshing to them. They can't wait. People are so happy to see you. It's a wonderful thing compared to, again, say, meeting up with an athlete here where they're like, oh, God, more media. God, this is the 15th interview I've done this week. I'm so sick of doing media. When you're half a world away from home, you just want a familiar face and a familiar accent. You can't wait. So they've all got great stories to tell. And the whole premise, yeah, behind Aussies Abroad is about the journey. We see what we see on the field. We see that Mark Schwartzer ended up being a great goalkeeper for Australia. And he had success and he had failures. And we saw those all play out publicly. But how did he get to that point? It can't have all been smooth sailing because it never is. And sure enough, with Mark, you dig deep enough and you find out that he, his first gig overseas was in Germany. He was absolutely miserable. He came home crying to his girlfriend at the time saying, I can't do this anymore. I want to go home to Australia. She says, well, let's leave Germany. It's not working out. Why don't we just roll the dice? We're over here. Let's go try a club in England. He does. Look, at his, look how different his path is. He could have come back and played NSL and been retired at 32, and none of us had ever heard of him. Everyone, doesn't matter how famous you are or how successful you are, they've all had these critical moments in their careers and their lives where things have worked out. If I don't win this weekend, I haven't got any money, I'm going to have to jump on a plane and fly back to Australia and the dream's over, and they find a way to win. Everyone's got these stories. So that's what I really love about Aussies Abroad, is bringing these stories to life. And the greatest um, compliment that you can get as a storyteller and I got this from Kurt Fernley uh, when I did Kurt's story, the great wheelchair athlete, is that he said to me afterwards, he sent me a lovely letter saying, listen, out of all the dozens of TV stories and profiles and things that I've done, the story that you did on me, my siblings came to me and said, you know what, that's the best representation of your story and who you really are that we've ever seen. And so as a, as a storyteller, that's the highest compliment. You've done Absolutely. his story justice. The way you've told his story is exactly how it happened. And that's really all I want to do. And I think one of the reasons athletes love the series, and I had people like Tim Cale and Cadell Evans and things interested in doing it, is because they've seen it and they've seen that I allow the athletes to tell their stories in their own words. So they reached out to you, those two? Yeah, Tim Cale reached out to one of our reporters here in Australia and wow. said, hey, I love that. I saw that Aussies Abroad series. I love it. I'd love to be involved. And what a great compliment. Cadell Evans, who never does anything, as you've seen. I mean, Cadell's a very, very private person. And... Um, and again, I sort of reached out to Cadell and the feedback I got was that he'd seen the series and he liked the idea of someone, he felt comfortable and, and trusted that I'd be able to tell his story in his own words. And so I went and spent a week with Cadell at his house in Switzerland and he said to me openly, mate, I've never had anyone, no journalist ever has been in my house. It just doesn't happen. But I want to do this show because I think that at the end of it, you'll tell my story the way it should be told. So, I mean, that's just a, a wonderful compliment. That's what I think is the beauty of the concept is that you, you mentioned that you've become friends with a lot of them. And I think one of the, the strongest um, uh, connections there is the fact is because you are an Australian trying to tell an Australian story for, you know, an Australian audience, they're going to be much more receptive because I, I think that when you're an Australian athlete in the US, you probably don't have people that in the US advocating or, or you know, trying to promote your story. Whereas, you know, they, they want to probably be, make Australia proud. And that's where you become that conduit between those two um, demographics. And I think that's it's really interesting to hear that, um, you know, you become friends with them or that they reach out to you because I think that's, um, that, you know, adds something special and it's a great reassurance that, uh, that uh, obviously you're doing a good job. Yeah, and there's, we've got similar experiences too. I mean, at the end of the day, I was an Aussie abroad. I'd gone through the same thing. I'd taken my family halfway across the world 
left my friends and my greater network of family and friends behind. And so a lot of the similar issues and challenges and sacrifices and hurdles and homesicknesses and that they're going through, I've been through as well. So we have a lot in common. So I understand their story a lot better than if I was just based here in Melbourne and just flying over doing a story every now and again and then flying home. The fact that I've been along a similar path to those guys means that when it came time to sit down and share our experiences, we realised there was a lot of common ground. Just no seven-figure pay packet. No, no, not exactly. <laughs> well, but, I'm not sure what ESPN was like for you, but... But most of the guys that are over living in America don't have that either. I mean, that's the thing. Or, or Europe. I mean, they all start out, they're all broke. They are all desperately scrapping and fighting to try and make their way to the top. And eventually some of them get there. A lot of them don't. Uh, the reason that most of them go overseas to begin with certainly isn't the money. They're chasing their dream. And if the money comes later, well, it's a bonus. So once you actually got the all clear from ESPN to start Aussies Abroad, how much of an idea did you know about what you wanted to do and who you wanted to chat to and how much research did you put in before you actually recorded that first episode? A lot. Every every single um, athlete that I went and spent time with, we talked about research earlier. Again, when you're doing an interview, the best compliment you can get as an interviewer is when the athlete says to you, oh, geez, you've done your homework. Or, you know, gee, your research is incredible. No one's ever asked me those questions before. And that was what I always prided myself on. I wanted to make sure that I did ask questions that they'd never been asked before or got them to think about things they hadn't thought of before. And so I did a lot of homework, a lot. Um, if they've written a biography or, or someone's written a biography, they've written an autobiography, I'd buy it and read it. I'd, I'd want to know everything there was to know about people in and out before I sat down with them to the point where I never, ever interviewed with a list of questions. I never had a clipboard in front of me. I would interview these guys literally for two hours, more sometimes, and I would never have one question written down. And the reason for that is that every time you look down at your clipboard to see what the next question is, you immediately break eye contact with the person. So it goes from being a conversation to an interview. And that immediately reminds them that, oh, that's right. He's, I'm trying to tell him I'm pouring my heart out here about some tragedy in my life. And he's already looking at his next question. And, oh, that's right. There's camera guys here in the room and there's lights and there's microphones. And it just takes you away from a conversation. And, and I wanted our interview to not really be an interview. It's just a conversation like we're having right now. You ask me questions, I ask you questions, and we just talk like friends or family would. And that's where you get the best material out of people. And that's where you do get them to open up and talk about things. And as an interviewer, nothing frustrates me more when I watch interviews and you can tell the interviewer's already got the next question in their mind. And by doing that, you're actually missing a trigger of something really interesting that the person's just said to you that you should be your next follow-up question. But you sort of skip over it because you're like, oh, well, hang on, question 31 is what's your favourite colour? And and the opportunity just disappears and you never get back there again. It's like you're interrogating us at the moment. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at you and you're like... It's, it's like you're reading my mind or something I'm like not, that. I'm, 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 I'm under pressure at the moment. I'm not breaking eye contact for the rest yeah, of the Exactly. <laughs> That's, I'm not looking down at my paper for the rest of the time. That brings us to the end of the show today. As I said at the start of the show, the second half of the Jason Bennett chat will be available next week. We'll be playing the second half of that chat next week. Uh, so be sure to stay tuned for that. As always, you can find all of our stuff on the uh, SEN America website. If you go to sen.com.au. There'll be a tile for SEN America at the top there. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SEN America, and on Twitter at SEN America. Have a good week, guys. For more SEN America podcasts, head to sen.com.au. To keep up to date with the latest American sports news and interviews from around SEN, follow SEN America on Twitter at SEN America and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SEN America. Here's some-